My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby Wilson, and today's episode, we will delve into the importance of insurance, fair and equal access, equitable access to transportation systems and services for individual communities, regardless of race, income, age, ability, or where you live. Now, as usual, before we dig into this episode, I really want to talk more about why are we doing these things? What is environmental justice? How do I get involved in environmental justice? So as you know, I'm from the state of Mississippi, grew up in Vicksburg. I grew up near a landfill, a sewer treatment plant, a major highway. My pops was a pipe fitter. Growing near the river really instilled in me uh, this love of the environment. But growing in those hazards made me concerned about what was going on. Why were those hazards in my neighborhood? And it's very interesting. You think about what's happening right now in my home state of Mississippi with the Jackson water crisis. You see the intersection of race and class. You see factors around, you know, the plantation politics in the state of Mississippi, where the majority black city of Jackson, folks don't have good infrastructure. They were without uh, safe water. And you see similarities in what happened with the Flint water crisis in other parts of the country where folks don't have access to safe water. Folks don't have access to good infrastructure. These are environmental justice issues. You think about how some communities don't have access because of their color of their skin. We talk about the color of the law, how some folks get access to sewer and water, but others don't. Talk about the fact that some communities get access to other infrastructure, but others don't. And you see these injustices in access to infrastructure. You see these injustices where hazards go, polluters go. And, you know, we think about environmental justice. It's about what we live, what we work, what we play, what we pray, what we learn. And some communities, because of their race, ethnicity, because of their income, because of language, where they're from, because of geography, they don't have the complexion for protection. They may be overburdened by hazards. They may be used as sacrifice zones. These communities experience toxic trauma, in some cases because of the pollution that they're exposed to and other stressors that they're exposed to. So this is the work that we think about. These are issues that we look at at siege you know, the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice and Health. What about providing technical support, assistance to communities that are experiencing environmental injustices, climate injustices, and energy injustices? We do empowerment science, you know, helping people use science to build their power. We do liberation science, helping communities liberate themselves from pollution, from environmental injustices. And so to do this work, we really have to have partnerships with communities. 
to make sure that we are implementing the 17 principles of environmental justice. If you don't know the 17 principles, please look them up. One of those core principles communities with their own voice, self-determination. We're talking about representative justice and how we do planning, zoning, and development. Where transportation infrastructure goes, right? And making sure that all people have equitable access to that infrastructure. So in this podcast, in the My Block Counts podcast, we take a deep dive into issues impacting communities in the state of Maryland, in the D.C. region, around the country, really looking at the issues of how do we build healthy, sustainable, just communities. So in today's episode, we're going to explore the, the concepts of transportation justice and, and transit equity. So when you think about transportation justice, it acknowledges the crucial role of transportation in how we access employment, education, healthcare, and other essential services. Transportation infrastructure is like the arteries, right? You know, think about your body and how we move back and forth. Think, you know, how things circulate in your body. Without transportation infrastructure, we cannot move to different parts of our ecosystems, the different parts of our communities, where the jobs are, where the schools are, right? Transportation is important, but some of us don't have equitable access to good transportation infrastructure. According to the University of Minnesota Center for Transportation Services, transportation equity is defined as transportation systems that support multimodal. What I mean by that, you know, folks can drive, you got trains, you got buses, you use your feet, multimodal, use your bike options that are affordable, sustainable, reliable, efficient, safe, and easy to use. A fact for everyone, there are 6,800 organizations that offer public transportation employing over 450,000 Americans around the country. Since the 70s, the transportation sector has grown 37%. And the transit system in our country is comprised of 240,000 route miles. In 2019, Americans took 9.9 .9 billion trips via public transportation. Yet 45% of Americans do not have access to public transportation. So when you think about environmental injustice, we talked previously in other podcasts about water issues. We talked a lot about food justice issues and food apartheid. But you also have issues when it comes to transportation justice, right? So think about, again, how racism plays a role in the distribution of pollution sources, which we talk about a lot, but also how racism, power, privilege plays a role in the distribution of infrastructure, income inequality. How is that linked to environmental justice? Income inequality, how does it relate to transportation injustices? Racial inequality, how is that linked to environmental injustice? and racial inequality, how racial equality is linked to transportation justice issues. So let's dig a little bit deeper. We know that Dr. Robert Bullard, who's been called by some the father of the environmental justice movement, he refers to transportation as a fundamental aspect of human life that greatly influences how people interact with each other, their economic mobility and opportunity, and sustainability. Transportation plays a critical role in providing access to economic opportunity. It helps to reduce poverty unemployment because again remember transportation systems are like the arteries right they move people back and forth from their homes to their jobs if you don't have good transportation infrastructure you cannot get to those jobs you cannot make money to have a living wage that can lead to you being able to take care of your family which could contribute to poverty issues 
contribute to unemployment or underemployment rates. And so without good transportation infrastructure, you can't really get at these equal opportunity for folks. In this article addressing urban transportation equity in the U.S., Dr. Bullard states that within the United States, transportation inequity is a civil rights and social justice issue because we've had many transportation advancements and investments, but they do not benefit all communities equally. And again, as Dr. Bullard would say, some communities have the complexion for protection. In this case, some communities don't have the complexion for transportation. So we have to really examine the unequal distribution of benefits from transportation. So we think about environmental justice, and there's different forms of justice we want to key in on. We talk about representative justice. As I said earlier, communities speak with their own voice. How are communities who do not have access to transportation infrastructure, how they speak with their own voices to get access? Our guest today, Samuel Jordan, he will talk about those issues, but you also have issues around procedural justice. So how's the law applied equally? We're going to talk about the Civil Rights Act. How's that relevant to transportation justice and transportation access? And then you have distributional justice. Benefits are all communities receiving co-benefits of access to transportation. Those economic benefits, social benefits, health benefits. That's an issue to think about as well. So when you think about these issues of transportation, uh, again, the fight for transportation justice is the extension of the civil rights movement, just in the same way the fight for environmental justice as the extension of the civil rights movement. So this is a, a larger struggle for social justice, a larger struggle for equal rights, a larger struggle for racial justice. And it harkens back to Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, folks in the civil rights movement, and then the actions of those of us more in recent civil rights movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, the global movement for Black lives. These things are all connected. So we think about food apartheid, recreational apartheid, medical apartheid. We have some communities are also dealing with transportation apartheid. So the environmental justice movement is a movement that seeks to dismantle structural racism, right? Or structural racism that seeks to dismantle to address this transportation apartheid that folks are experiencing throughout our country. And if you look in the state of Maryland, we have communities experiencing those issues in the city of Baltimore and other parts of the state and also in the larger DC region, particularly if you look in Ward 7 and 8 compared to other parts of DC, the inequities in transportation access. This is a big issue. It's a major environmental justice issue. It's a major social justice issue. It's a major economic justice issue. So when you think about why do we have these transportation justice issues, you have to go back, everyone. If you don't know this act, please look it up. The Federal Highway Act of 1956, also known as the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act. This bill was signed into law by Eisenhower. Y'all know how long ago Eisenhower was, you know, the, that administration. It authorized the construction of 41,000 miles of interstate highways aimed to connect fragmented local roads and spur commerce and transportation from coast to coast. But it also aimed to do is to displace, get rid of, destroy black and brown communities. Look at the bill. Look at the discussions around the bill. Basically, it was a form of a bill to really destroy black communities, destroy brown communities. And so you see why we have some of the pollution issues and 
health issues and segregation issues in many of our cities today, it can be linked back to this act in 1956. And why is that? So you think about this issue of redlining. So y'all know redlining, 1940s, 1970s, you know, you think about government policies, you know, legal racism and legal separation of folks, legalized segregation, redlining of discriminatory practice of denying services like mortgages, insurance loans, and other financial services to residents of a certain geographic location, mostly based on race and ethnicity. So for example, there was a map, and y'all can visualize this map. Oh, look at this neighborhood. There are a lot of folks of color. Hmm, I'm not sure we want to give them loans or, you know, these financial services. We're going to color them red. Oh, this other neighborhood. Wow, there's more white people here. We're going to color this neighborhood green. We're going to make sure they get mortgages, that they get financial services. They're able to get access to insurance. Between 1945 and 1959, Black Americans really less than 2% of federally insured loans for homes. We talk in this country about the way to build wealth is through home ownership. If you have government policies that specifically target a group of people because of their race to deny them loans, how are you going to build wealth? So a lot of the economic inequality, the wealth inequality that we have in this country between Blacks and whites can directly link to redlining, be directly linked to Mortgage discriminations. As white Americans were afforded the opportunity to relocate from urban areas into the suburban areas commuted by private vehicles, the construction of highways led to displacement of communities of color. Again, intensifying housing restrictions, reducing opportunity, and increasing inequality. So you had an increased automobile sales for white Americans. And this process excluded Black Americans from attaining generational wealth. In root shock, Dr. Minnie Fullerloaf, she dug into this issue a little bit more, and she describes the traumatic dislocation experienced by individuals and communities when they're forcibly uprooted from their homes and communities due to factors like urban renewal. Think about the term urban renewal. It's not for you if you're a person of color. We're going to get rid of you by building a highway through your community. We're going to displace you. So you think about this issue of urban renewal and gentrification, this kind of redevelopment, what it is, is gentrification is that expulsive zoning, planning, and development. So you have this renewal of an area and it's rebuilding of an area, but it's not for the folks who've been there long-term. Long-term residents who were left behind by white flight. The long-term residents were left behind by the impacts of redlining and segregation. The long-term residents were left behind due to disinvestment and divestment in their communities because of their skin color. So now with renewal of this gentrification, you see the displacement of folks, the loss of social connections, loss of community identity, the loss of cultural heritage, an erasure of Black communities, an erasure of Brown communities. This disruption can result in feelings of disorientation, isolation, and a loss of identity. So when you do development, it has to be for us without us, right? That's the mantra you hear people talking about when you have redevelopment because you want to make sure it benefits, again, that distribution of justice, it benefits those long-term residents. Now, you get back to these highways. Think about highways being built through a community and bisecting and dissecting those communities. And highway building, again, was a driver of environmental injustice. These freeway projects regularly displaced folks, destroyed neighborhoods, leaving people out in the wind. They couldn't attain new housing in other areas of the city. 
And think about the construction of these highways, these freeways contain decades. And think about the extra knowledge that produced, kind of the double jeopardy during the construction phase. You have the noise pollution, you have the air pollution in the construction phase. But in the operation phase of highway, think about all the cars that move through people's neighborhoods that may be burning gasoline or you have a diesel burning car. Maybe you don't, but the trucks and the buses that burn diesel, the air pollutes that people are exposed to. So if you're driving on the highway and you don't have an electric vehicle, you are leaving toxicants in your wake, particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide, volatile organic compounds, sulfur dioxide, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs. You may be leaving metal dust as well from pushing your brakes. So you're leaving a mixture of chemicals in your wake that then get absorbed by the trees, abiotic components of that community, you know, the roadways. But remember, you also have people. So when you drive through somebody's neighborhood, you're leaving pollution. They also absorb that can lead to adverse health effects, cardiopulmonary impacts, lead to things like asthma, stroke, and other adverse health effects. So that's a double jeopardy of the physical stressor, which is noise pollution during the construction phase of the highway and the operation phase, and the chemical stressor like particulate matter. So when it's completed as an operation again, folks are they're trapped by that pollution and they're literally exposed to trap, which is traffic-related air pollution again. Trap. Those of you who understand what I'm about to say, not trap music, but pollution. Something to think about when we have all these highways and byways going through black and brown communities. Now, his book, Highway Robbery, Dr. Bullitt talks about transportation racism. He states that freeways physically isolate residents from their institutions and businesses, disrupt once-stable communities, displace thriving businesses, contribute to urban sprawl, subsidize infrastructure decline, create traffic gridlock, and subject residents to elevated risks from accidents, spills, explosions from vehicles carrying hazardous chemicals, and other dangerous materials. So let's get back into this issue of redlining. And I'm going to talk about Baltimore. So this stems from a 1930s federal policy that gave the Homeowners Loan Corporation, y'all can look that up, H-O-L-C. Again, a lot of our wealth inequality in this country can be linked back to the whole policy redlining and what the H-O-L-C did or did not do for communities of color. It gave the ability to color code areas to develop security maps for investment purposes. So in a study by NIH regarding the health impacts of red line in Baltimore, they concluded that these very same red lines in Baltimore, preset by the HOLC, had a 5.23 year reduction in life expectancy in comparison to those that were colored green. So neighborhoods of color red, people had a five-year less life expectancy compared to areas that were colored green. So y'all heard it before. Your zip code is more important. Your genetic code place matters. Where you live can kill you. So you live in an area that's been redlined. You're being impacted from a health perspective. It impacts your life expectancy. Think about redlining. It's a form of segregation. Segregation concentrates economic risks, social risks, environmental risks, and health risks, right? Now, during the population boom, talk about Baltimore again. During the population boom, 1940s and 50s in Baltimore, we saw a significant disparity in housing access for African-Americans. Despite being nearly 20% of the population in 1943, African-Americans were limited to only four square miles of housing. I'm gonna say it again, four square miles of housing when the inner city, which was commonly known as the basin at the time. Now it's referred to as the inner harbor, which is now prime real estate. So back then you had divestment and disinvestment 
And now you got a lot of investment, but folks are being pushed out. So it's a rubber band effect when you're Black living in the big city. This unequal distribution of housing opportunities highlights the historical housing segregation and systemic challenges faced by African-Americans in Baltimore during that period. Now, years later, saw the ability of Black residents to buy into white neighborhoods. But this was also made difficult by the inability to finance housing when you say neighborhoods. So think about the fact that you have Black folks who are not able to get loans because of redlining the HOLC, because of that discrimination, racial discrimination. And because they're able to build wealth and transfer that wealth from generation to generation, now folks who want to buy into the city who may be upwardly mobile don't have enough income, don't have enough money in the bank because of that historic racism. So what's past is prologue. That past racism impacts folks' ability to have opportunity. Again, this is why it's important when we think about how racism this doesn't impact folks in the past. It impacts their kids, it impacts their kids, and it impacts their kids. The negative impacts of racism are intergenerational. Folks who got pushed out because of this gentrification that's happening today, because of this urban renewal that's happening today, because, oh, we had this great development, these great plans for sustainability in Baltimore. It's not just Baltimore, it's other cities around the country where you had areas of the community where you had a lot of Black folks were living and they were disinvested, divested. And all of a sudden, it's prime real estate. Now, folks, with this prime real estate in the harbor, right, in Baltimore, now these Black folks are getting pushed into the east and west sides of Baltimore. I'm going to talk about that. The Black butterfly. Now, according to the 2022 July census, Baltimore's made up now 60% Black Americans. Relegate the neighborhoods on the outermost parts of the inner harbor. So you think about African-Americans are living in the east and west Baltimore, which has been referred to as the black butterfly. Think about the butterfly. I love butterflies. I'm a gardener, right? It's been kind of cold, so the weather's been a little chilly, so my butterfly's not out yet, which is a good thing, because my garden, the caliper's not eating up all my food, but that's not the point. Point is, butterflies are a beautiful organism, but in the context of this application to Baltimore, the butterfly wings, east and west Baltimore, are hyper-segregated. This term black butterfly was coined by Dr. Lawrence Brown, professor at Morgan State University, who does a lot of work in health equity and is a, a contributor to urban Afrofuturism. The black butterfly refers to predominantly poor black and brown neighborhoods of West and East Baltimore. This is in contrast with the white L or the body of the butterfly encompassing south of Baltimore towards the inner harbor. These areas, again, are predominantly wealthy and white. So again, visualize y'all a butterfly flying around. The wings are black folks, brown folks, poor folks, but the body, you know, in the middle where all the wealthy white residents live. So let's think about this in the context of green space and impervious surfaces, paved roads. When you look at two neighborhoods in Baltimore, you have Mount Washington, 65% white, and then you have Upton, 90% black. You can see a big difference in, in green space between the two. And these areas are six, six miles apart, right? So you, you also can highlight these two areas and see the differences in transportation justice. You can look at, there's nearly five times the amount of green space in Mount Washington compared to Upton. Think about the issue of highways and byways being built, the issue of redlining, issue of who gets access to infrastructure, whether it be built infrastructure or green infrastructure, talking about green space, right? And then talk about the issue of zoning. Zoning has been weaponized against folks of color. As y'all know, Baltimore was the first in the country that had racism-based zoning. It got thrown out of the Supreme Court. Now y'all can push me on that. But racism is baked into zoning. 
in Baltimore, in other parts of our state, and across the country. Again, there's a book written by Julie Z called Noxious New York, and it talks about how zoning was weaponized against poor folks and folks of color in the city of New York. So it's not just Baltimore, it's around the country. Zoning plays a significant role in shaping our built environments, shaping our natural environments, shaping our community ecosystems, how we have access to infrastructure, and it shapes our health opportunities. In the case of Mount Washington, there's a high percentage of green space, about 74%, that suggests that they use zoning to preserve natural space, green space, open space, right? Protect natural areas. And think about what green space does. I said this before, y'all. Think about the power of just a tree. Trees are good for air pollution mitigation, heat mitigation, noise mitigation, right? Stormwater management. Trees are good for mental health, playability. You can grow food on trees. You got food for us, right? Think about the benefits of having trees and what it does to the health acting as the lungs, vital remediation. Think about that term. Or a photosynthesis, what do trees do? Absorbing pollutants like CO2, so they act as carbon sinks. There's so many benefits of trees. And being a Southern boy, you know, from Mississippi, think about those of you who've got grandma, grandpa, y'all go down south, you got a little tree, got a bench on the tree, you're drinking lemonade, you get the breeze, right? You enjoy nature. There's a nature gap. And you see this example of Mount Washington versus Upton, the nature gap. And the impact on health, when you have access to green space, you're going to have longer life expectancy. When you compare the amount of green space in Mount Washington, again, about 74% to the average level in Baltimore, green space is only about 33%. That's a huge difference between Mount Washington and, again, Baltimore as a whole. And also, you see a higher percentage of paved surfaces. So in areas that have lower green space, you're going to see more impervious surfaces, more paved surfaces, more concrete, more asphalt. And remember, again, that contributes to the urban heat island effect, which means when you think about this double jeopardy, I'm going to use that term again, you're in an area that may be warmer because of more concrete and asphalt. They have fewer trees. And if you have more pollution, you're going to be exposed to chemical stressors and then be dealing with a physical stressor like heat. And then, as I said before, with the noise pollution, we think about highways and byways, you may have noise pollution heat stress, and then also air pollution. When you have a lot of urbanization, you have a lot of paved and pervious surfaces, this limits access to parks and open space. And think about it, yo, again, context matters, place matters. I said your zip code is more important than genetic code. Bring it down to the hyperlocal level, your neighborhood level. If you don't have access to green space, if you don't have access to a multimodal of ways to get around, like pedestrian walkways, bike paths as well. What does that mean when it comes to your physical activity level? How do we expect people to be physically active when we don't have access to green space? You don't have access to parks. How do we expect people to live healthy lives and have a long life expectancy when they are living in an area where there's no parks, no green space, and they've been exposed to a lot of air pollution? And so we see again in Baltimore a connection between redlining segregation in housing value, redlining segregation in green space access, Red line and segregation in the issue of perfect surfaces, red line and segregation in the issue of urban heat islands, even looking at lead violations, older housing stock that may have lead paint. You see association, you see a direct correlation. So the areas where you see more older homes and areas where there's more segregation, more redlining, you're going to see more lead violations in those neighborhoods. And so getting back to this Upton example, the neighborhood has the lowest green space, 17 to 18 percent, 
the high percentage of paid services, about 30%, and higher rates of lead paint violations, about 60%, and a lower life expectancy. So again, context matters, place matters. We see a correlation between green space access, urban development, housing quality, and health. So you see this intersectionality. And in public health realm, we call this the social determinants of health, housing, access to infrastructure, access to nature. These things impact your health. When you think about these issues of redlining and transit and equity, let's focus it on DC. We got to talk about this region, the DMV region. So talk about Baltimore. We'll talk about DC. Christoph Spieler, professor at Rice University, has conducted work looking at entrenched racism in urban transit system. His work reveals that racism is deeply rooted. Y'all heard me say it before, and I'll say it again, everybody. Racism in America is as American as apple pie. Racism is baked into the walls of America. It's perpetuated through various mechanisms. Think about inequities in planning, zoning, and development are driven by racism. Think about deed restrictions, Levitt Towns. Y'all can look up Levitt Towns. Mortgage lending, zoning practices, transit operation, all that is connected to racism. Deed restrictions, historically used to enforce discriminatory practices, played a, a major role in perpetuating racial segregation, driving exclusionary zoning. These restrictions were employed to limit the ability of individuals from communities of color that may be marginalized to force them to live in certain neighborhoods and to prevent them from owning property. Again, how are you going to build wealth if you can't own your own home? So these racial inequalities when the urban areas have persisted. They've been insidious. It's structured racism. I got a colleague, Carlton Ellie's a planner. He, he says, Jacob is called planning, not accident. It's not by accident. This is an issue in many of our cities, like Baltimore, like D.C. So folks who live in these communities who've been forced into being trapped, right, been forced to experience disadvantage, face limited access to, again, essential resources and opportunities to infrastructure. According to the Transit Center, you look at transit in D.C., you see a significant lack of equity and fairness in the transit system. Now, this transit system is supposed to be intended to serve all residents. All lives matter, right, regardless of their socioeconomic status. But it's falling short of providing equal access and opportunities for all individuals in the D.C. region. Now, one of the key issues when you look at the transit system is the unequal, again, distribution of resources and services. Certain neighborhoods, you know neighborhoods I'm about, with more folks of color, folks who don't have the complexion for protection, complexion for access to infrastructure, poor folks, your economic power equates to political power, so you have limited political power, that means you have less voice. These communities face disparities in terms of transit, infrastructure, and, and service quality. So it's not just about getting access to infrastructure, it's the quality of the infrastructure. Often, when you look at low-income people of color, communities. This leads to harder access to schools, hospitals, and grocery stores. So when you have inequities in the transportation infrastructure, inequities in the quality of said infrastructure, it creates an accessibility issue. You make it harder for folks to get to their jobs. You make it hard for folks to get to the schools. You make it hard for folks to get to the hospital when they may need the dialysis, when they may need life-saving surgery. And this has been, again, systematically dictated by a race in Washington, D.C., once known as Chocolate City. For example, the average Black resident in D.C. has access to around 160,000 jobs, 
within 45 minutes of public transit. White residents, on the other hand, have access to 256,000 jobs when the same 45 minutes of transit. Another aspect of the inequity is affordability. So we talked about quality of the infrastructure. You got the accessibility of the infrastructure. You got the affordability. We talk about affordability affairs. Many individuals and families, especially those with low income, find it challenging to afford the cost of public transportation. So again, using the words of Dr. Bullard, some folks don't have the complexion for protection and then they don't have the complexion for access. They have the complexion to afford. So these high fares coupled with inadequate access to the affordable transportation further hinders their ability to access opportunity, opportunity for good jobs, opportunity to access good schools, opportunity to access good housing, opportunity to access the infrastructure, which again, exacerbates, magnifies, worsens economic disparities and, and limits mobility. If you have limited mobility, that means you have limited opportunity. If you have limited mobility, that means you have stunted opportunity. You have a cap on your opportunity. Y'all know I'm an environmental health scientist. I didn't say that earlier, but I'm at the School of Public Health, University of Maryland College Park. So you got to talk about the public health impacts of these things, of inequitable transportation access. When you have communities that don't have good access to transportation, multimodal transportation, they can be living in what we call a transportation desert with limited or no access to public transportation. This isolates residents, impedes their ability to access job opportunities, educational institutions, healthcare. Maybe you don't have to go to the hospital, but maybe you can go to emergency services, or maybe you have to go to, that, to your dentist or another doctor, right? You can't access those facilities and other essential services. People in low-income neighborhoods are more likely to experience transportation-related health challenges, such as limited access to healthcare facilities, healthy food options, and recreational spaces. So I like to use the word salutogenic, health promoting infrastructure. That term comes from salutogenesis. Can't spell it, but I'll try to. S-A-L-U-T-O-G-E-N. Assist. Salutogenesis is a term that was coined by Antonovsky. It's about how do we promote health, wellness, well-being across all dimensions of the environment. The built, natural, social, economic, political, and spiritual. So what I'm saying is, if you have transportation inequities, remember the transportation system acts as the arteries of the body. Think about your community as, a, as an organism. If your arteries are clogged, you can't get the blood to the different organs. If your arteries are clogged, you can't get air, nutrients to different organs. Apply it to your community. If you don't have good access to your transportation systems, you can't get to the healthcare, to the healthy foods, to the jobs, to the schools, to natural spaces, to the rivers and streams to get those benefits of being outside with nature. And again, think about public health outcomes of transportation equity, life expectancy. I talked about Baltimore a little bit with the Mount Washington versus Upton examples. But look at DC. We got wards one to wards eight. You also see differences in life expectancy that you can link it to infrastructure transportation infrastructure and the benefits that it provides to give you access to those other salutogenic infrastructures, salutogenic resources I've mentioned before. The average life expectancy for white residents in DC is around 84 years. In contrast, 76 years for black residents. This is an eight year life expectancy gap. Now that's even higher gaps, I believe shown as a 20 year difference in some studies between wars one compared to wars seven and eight. In neighborhoods with higher median household incomes, such as Chevy Chase, the average life expectancy is around 
87 years. So again, if you have systemic racism, structural racism, it impacts your opportunity for home ownership, it impacts your opportunity to build wealth. This wealth gap, this racial gap in wealth, this wealth gap leads to a health gap, leads to a life expectancy gap. So again, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. Where you live can kill you, but where you live could mean you, you don't live as long compared to other communities. When you look at neighborhoods that are known to have some economic disadvantage like Anacostia and Congress Heights, their average life expectancy is lower, much lower, around 72 to 73 years. So compared it again to Chevy Chase, that's a big issue. So we have to improve access to infrastructure, particularly transportation infrastructure. And you see a significant disparity too when you look at income. There's a 14 to 15 year difference in life expectancy between high income in low-income neighborhoods in D.C. Access to reliable, affordable, and efficient transportation options plays a crucial role in promoting public health, promoting population health, promoting community health. Equitable transit systems enable individuals to access health care. Caduceus staff has two snakes. We're talking about one snake. It's the health care snake. But the one that's more important is the public health snake, the prevention snake. If you give people access to nature, sidewalks, neighborhoods with healthy housing, healthy transportation, you can prevent disease prevent high asthma rates, prevent asthma hospitalizations, prevent heat-related morbidity and mortality, prevent having reduced stroke rate, reduce the rate of diabetes. So you need to be able to engage in physical activity, reduce air pollution, and you can have reduced traffic congestion because think about urban sprawl, right? And the fact that we're sitting when we're driving, that can contribute to some poor health behaviors and also impact health. So again, we need to have equitable transit systems to have good public health. So by prioritizing and investing in equitable transit systems, we can improve overall health, reduce health disparities, achieve health equity, which creates healthier and more sustainable neighborhoods and environments for all residents. So you think about this with black residents needing to use public transit 6% more than white residents, it's an issue. We saw this as an issue with the COVID-19 pandemic. Those essential workers had to go out, nine out of 10 were folks of color, but they still had to go to work and they had to use public transit to get to work. What can we do about this? With Title VI and the Civil Rights Act, decrees that no entity can discriminate based on race, color, or national origin in any program receiving federal funds or federal assistance. Now, this is important for black and brown folks to secure an equal access to the same public buses and modes of transportation, government roads and parks, as their white counterparts and help bridge many inconsistencies when it came to the law and policy. You think about the transportation Title VI program from DOT. That program was implemented in 2019. You have an effort to expand and reinforce anti-discrimination practices through DOT. You think about this new Justice 40 initiative out of the Biden administration, which comes out of Executive Order 14008, to make sure that a minimum of 40% of the benefits of federal investments go to disadvantaged communities to address, in the case of DOT, Department of Transportation, address the disproportionate impacts of transportation policies and projects on communities of color. Those who have been impacted by segregation, redlining, the National Highway Defense Act in 1956, HOLC's policies. Under the 2023 Transportation Act, DOT has taken steps to integrate environmental justice principles. Remember, the, look up those 17 principles of environmental justice, everybody. 17 principles that were codified at the First People Color Summit in 1991. Integrate these principles into decision-making processes. 
in project planning. So we think about issues again, as I said, representative justice, distributional justice, procedural justice, intergenerational justice, into conducting comprehensive assessments to evaluate potential environmental and social impacts on communities, particularly those who've been overburdened and underserved. The act aims to ensure that at least 40% of transportation investments benefit disadvantaged communities and mandates increased community engagement and decision-making. Again, one of the 17 principles of environmental justice, communities speak with their own voice. You cannot address structured racism you cannot address historic and contemporary racism. You can't address Jim Crow 1.0 and Jim Crow 2.0 without the folks that most impacted being at the table and driving the decisions. This act also prioritizes sustainable and resilient transportation solutions, such as bringing in EVs, electric vehicles, active transportation options, you know, ability to ride bikes and other forms of active transportation when you're using your feet to reduce greenhouse gas emissions co-pollutants like particulate matter that I mentioned before, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and other contaminants, improve public health, and enhance community connectivity. This act underscores DOT's commitment to advancing environmental justice and promoting equitable and sustainable transportation for all. Now, DOT has an interesting tool that y'all all can look up and use called the Equitable Transportation Community Explorer. It gives you the ability to look at transportation insecurity which is defined as the inability of individuals to regularly, reliably, and safely reach the destinations necessary to meet their daily needs. So again, grocery stores, schools, the place of employment, the churches, right, daycare centers. While national policies and programs exist to tackle issues like food insecurity and housing security, transportation insecurity is often overlooked. And again, it is a major significant issue in communities of color, particularly in urban areas. Research demonstrates that transportation insecurity plays a crucial role in perpetuating persistent poverty, that structured poverty. So when you think about transportation security, there's three domains. Now, I've talked about them already before. You have transportation access. So communities with high scores uh, uh, transportation in access face challenges commuting and reaching their desired destinations. These difficulties can hinder, again, access to employment resources. Then you have transportation cost burden. If you have a high score, this means you allocate a significant portion of your household income to transportation, including transit, vehicle maintenance, insurance, and fuel costs. So this leaves less money for essential needs like housing, medical care, your medicines, food. And this could potentially could lead to substandard housing. So you got to choose between your transportation and your housing. If you don't have enough money, something may get less attention. And this could lead to higher rates of chronic illness and also obesity and obesity-related conditions. Then you have transportation safety. Communities with high scores exhibit higher levels of fatalities per 100,000 persons due to motor vehicle crashes. So when you don't have good transportation infrastructure, you could have more crashes, more pedestrian safety issues. Now let's look at the data. Let's look at Baltimore County. We talked about Baltimore City already. Out of its total population of 828,000, approximately 350,000 individuals reside in a disadvantaged census tract. In terms of transportation access, the percentile rate is 40%, indicating that communities assessing transportation, access and transportation options, and reaching their desired destinations. For transportation cost burden, percentile rank 52%, suggesting that the communities experience a relatively higher burden when it comes to allocating 
a significant portion of their household income to transportation expenses. And regarding traffic safety, percentile rank is also 42%, reflecting a moderate level of safety concerns related to traffic, such as accidents, injuries, or fatalities. In contrast, Baltimore City, out of the total population of 602,000, about 380,000 individuals reside in a disadvantaged citizens' tract. Regarding transportation access, the percentile rate is 60%. This suggests that the communities being assessed face significant challenges in accessing transportation options and reaching their desired destinations. For transportation cost burden, the percentile rate is 78%. This indicates that the communities experience a high burden when it comes to allocating significant portion of their household income to transportation expenses, such as transit costs, vehicle maintenance, insurance, and fuel. And in terms of traffic safety, the percentile rate is 42%, suggesting a moderate level of safety concerns related to traffic, such as accidents, injuries, or fatalities. Now, we talked about Baltimore County, talking about Baltimore City. Let's talk about D.C. Out of 700,000 residents, approximately 256,000 reside in a disadvantaged census tract. Regarding temptation access, you can see the percentile rank is about 50%. Regarding cost burden, the percentile rank is also 50%. And regarding traffic safety, the percentile rate is 31%. Thank you for tuning in to episode 11, part one, where Dr. Shakobi Wilson delves into the importance of having equitable access to transportation services for individuals without prejudice. Join us for part two as we continue our discussion with guest Samuel Jordan. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.